Who owns history? Who owns the past? More fundamentally, what is history for? These questions clamour insistently for our attention in 2014, animating debate both inside the university sector and in wider public arenas. Ongoing arguments about the reform of the national curriculum have brought history teaching in schools to the forefront of media attention in recent weeks and months. Open a newspaper and Michael Gove pops up haranguing left-wing academics or teachers or students or comedians or the general public for disowning the First World War, for misunderstanding the meaning of that conflict, or more broadly, for failing to impart our island story, as he calls it, to youth in the next generation. Nor is contemporary debate about the purpose and the proprietorship of the British past confined to jumped-up journalists who read English at Oxbridge, conspicuous although such persons have been in recent media controversies. For we today now inhabit a place, a time and a culture, blessed with or suffering from an acute attack of historyitis. Downton Abbey, The Paradise, Call the Midwife, Britain's Great War and similar historical sagas vie for television viewers' attention in primetime slots. Linda Colley, Jonathan Friedland and Michael Portillo regale Radio 4 audiences with a constant stream of reflections on how the past informs the British present. At bookshops throughout Britain, shelves positively heave with historical tomes because, notwithstanding the repeated announcement of the demise of the book, history books continue to sell. Who owns history and what is history for? If we allow the Secretary of State for Education to dictate the terms within which we investigate and answer these essential questions, we impoverish both history teaching and history as a discipline. In the Govian worldview, British history matters for two fundamental reasons, one focused on the content and the other focused on pedagogy. The content of British history, according to Mr. Gove, is a cohesive fabric of national knowledge, a connected narrative, a shared island story that records the life of a unified nation over the centuries. The purpose of history, in Mr. Gove's interpretation, is pedagogic or educational. It teaches Britons essential lessons in how to be national in this island setting, a setting that has, in his view, forged a distinctive national culture through its powers of isolation. These claims about what British history is and about what British history is for have provoked a robust response from university-based historians, from history subject associations, teachers and politicians. Amidst much ensuing heat and clamour, Chris Clark, Professor of Modern European History at Cambridge, has offered an insightful critique of the two core concepts of the Govian view of history. Clark's critique reminds us that historical knowledge, that is the content of history, is never stable, never unambiguous, never transparent. Nor, he argues, is the educative purpose of history straightforward. History, Clark observes, is an eccentric educator, not a stable body of established fact or an agreed narrative line, but rather an ongoing process whose meaning has to be puzzled over. In my lecture this evening, I wish to use Clark's insights as a springboard for examining a key aspect of modern British history, that is its function as a process or practice. Practice is an aspect of history that has been ignored or marginalised in recent media debates about the content of history in the national curriculum. In place of the question, who owns history, I thus asked, who does history today and how do they do it? How do the answers to those questions change our understanding of what happened in the past and why the past matters? 
to explore who does history and why we should care who historians are, I'll be taking as my case study the East India Company at Home, a three-year collaborative research project based at UCL. As I hope to show, this project directly addresses many of the questions that animate the current Govian debates on British history and history teaching. Can Britain's past, for example, be told as an island story? Is British history a continuous national narrative? Is history shared, or instead is history unequally owned within the nation? But beyond these questions of content, the East India Company at Home project also reminds us that history as a discipline, as a practice, is as much about processes of investigation as it is about the substance of what happened in the past. To the extent that the Govian view of history attends to practice, its view is fundamentally atomistic and combative, suggesting that historical knowledge is generated by individual historians who can and should be ranged neatly into opposing camps, prepared to do ideological battle against each other. Yet, one of the most salient features of the practice of modern British history in the UK today is its increasingly collaborative nature. Using the East India Company at home as my example, tonight I explore the kinds of historical understanding that can be generated if history is practiced not as conflict but as cooperation, not as a lesson imparted from above by militant experts, but rather as a participatory process that connects and braids together different ways of finding and interpreting the past. The East India Company at Home is a group of 300-ish researchers who collaborate to achieve two main goals. Our first goal is to shed light on how Britain's 18th and 19th century Indian Empire transformed life at home in England, Scotland and Wales. How, we ask, does the island story of this nation look if we resituate the nation into a global context? To address this question, we focus on three intersecting topics the families of the East India Company, the Indian objects they brought home from the subcontinent, and the stately homes they purchased, rebuilt or refashioned upon their return to British shores. By treating the country house as a dynamic site in which new forms of power and identity were forged, rather than as an inert backdrop that reflected the character of an established nation, we hope to enrich understanding of how a globalising Britain became modern. In this, our project builds on Stuart Hall's analysis of the ways that national identities are created through narrative processes, through stories, images, landscapes and scenarios which stand for or represent the shared experiences, sorrows and triumphs which give meaning to the nation. Our second goal is to foster the practice of so-called public history, history that actively engages publics outside the university. How can historians from diverse backgrounds, who belong to distinctive traditions of historical practice, work on a shared historical project? Can global histories of the nation be enhanced by working collaboratively, not only across distinct academic disciplines, but also across the boundaries that conventionally divide academic history from historical research rooted in local communities, county record offices, stately homes and museums, or undertaken by independent researchers in national libraries. To orientate you within the East India Company at Home project, I'll begin by using a specific company family and its material objects and stately homes to illustrate why the country house and its occupants are useful instruments for probing the global dimensions of British identities. 
I'll then turn to examine how our project seeks to conduct research on these issues collaboratively. I'll conclude by returning to the question of historical practice more broadly today, suggesting that public debates on the content of history and the national curriculum draw from an unacceptably narrow range of historic, the historical spectrum and would do well to learn lessons from current practices of public history. Let me begin then by introducing the Russells of Swallowfield Park, Berkshire. Men and women whose twofold investment in English and global domestic life span three generations, the Russells illustrate many of the key themes and questions that shape the East India Company at home. Henry, later Sir Henry Russell, was the son of a middling Kentish merchant. He rose, through imperial service in India, to great wealth and status, shedding his mercantile origins for a secure position within the British state apparatus and within English country house society. Russell's appointment to the Supreme Court of Calcutta in 1797 allowed him to amass a prodigious private fortune and to establish three of his sons in the lucrative service of the East India Company, the monopoly which, until 1858, controlled British colonial administration on the Indian subcontinent. Sir Henry Russell's eldest son, also named Henry, served in the company's civil and political service from 1797 until 1820, assisted for extended periods by his brother Charles. The boy's mother, Lady Russell, also participated actively in the family's imperial project, bearing the last two of Sir Henry's ten children in Calcutta, before returning to England to begin the couple's search for an appropriate country house, a stately home in which the family intended their new private fortune and the power it conferred would be made publicly manifest. Purchased with Sir Henry Russell's Indian fortune in 1820, Swallowfield Park features in the Russell family history as a quintessentially English country house. This Anglo-centric interpretation pervades Swallowfield and its owners, a biography of the home published by Lady Constance Russell, wife of the fourth baronet, in 1901. Tracing its history seamlessly from the Norman Conquest to the Victorian era, this volume embeds Swallowfield deeply into the continuous narrative of English state formation by underlining its connection to a succession of medieval and Renaissance kings and queens. Granted as dowry to Elizabeth of York by Henry VII, Lady Russell noted, Swallowfield was held in succession by five of Henry VIII's six wives. The present-day house, built by the Tory Earl Clarendon in the 17th century, was later improved by the king's own architect and served as a royalist bastion in the 18th century, a persistent association with the English monarchy, which Lady Russell repeatedly underlined. Like her chapter on Swallowfield and the dowry of Tudor queens, her concluding paragraph on some old customs and antiquities of Swallowfield suggested that the home's biography exemplified the history of Merry England. This insular island history of Swallowfield persists to the present day, marketing materials for the luxury flats carved out of the estate in the 20th century continue to advertise Swallowfield as a classic, historic and traditional oasis of English country life, deleting explicit references to its long-standing global connections. For, as Lady Russell was well aware, Swallowfield's English history had, since the early 18th century, been closely intertwined with British imperial expansion. In 1719, the estate was purchased by Thomas Diamond Pitt. Pitt, the son of a Dorset clergyman, 
had secured a vast private fortune by illegal trade in India and sought to launder this Indian wealth through judicious investment in historic English landed estates. Pitt's acquisition set an imperial precedent at Swallowfield that continued into the 19th century. The estate passed from East Indian to West Indian hands in 1788 when Timothy Earle acquired Swallowfield for his family. In her 1901 history, Lady Russell passed discreetly over the source of Earle's wealth, noting only that he had inherited property on St Kitts and that his son later sold Swallowfield in consequence of the depreciation of West India property. But we know from the UCL Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project that Earl was a substantial slave owner. When emancipation was enacted in the 1830s, he received over £3,600 from Parliament, or just under £3 million in current money, as compensation for his loss of his property in 187 enslaved persons in the Caribbean. The Russell's purchase of Swallowfield from Earl ensured that this English home would remain joined at the hip to empire throughout the Victorian era. We can read this alternative global history of the English stately home off the very fabric and interiors of 19th century Swallowfield. Like so many East India Company families, the Russell's private correspondence is voluminous. Their letters demonstrate that Swallowfield's acquisition, renovation and refurbishment were made possible only by the Russell's Indian wealth. In their correspondence, Sir Henry, Lady Russell and their eldest sons carefully calculated how long they would have to remain in India, according to the cost of purchasing and furnishing a landed estate in England. Sir Henry's salary as the senior judge of the Calcutta Supreme Court allowed him to remit over £100,000, or over £70 million in current money, from India for the purchase of an English country estate. His eldest son's appointment as the East India Company's resident or diplomat at the princely court at Hyderabad carried a princely annual income of £20,000 or roughly £14 million per annum today. Together with his brother Charles's Indian fortune, these savings allowed the Russells upon their return to England to refashion their identity jettisoning commerce and the professions for genteel landed society, title status and political power. The purchase of Swallowfield in 1820 was orchestrated by Sir Henry Russell, but the house was renovated and furnished in the following decades by his eldest sons, Henry and Charles. Their architectural and decorative expertise had been gained not in England, a country that the boys had left for India as teenagers, but rather in Hyderabad, where the brothers had collaborated in the 1810s to refurbish the palatial, neoclassical British residency in which they both lived. English sporting prints and glassware sent from London helped to mark the Hyderabad residency during Henry Russell's occupancy with a distinctly national aesthetic. His purchases for the library at the residency reinforced this anglicising tendency Busts of Shakespeare, Milton, Newton, Locke, Burke, Fox and Pitt stamped this room firmly with the impress of the British intellectual tradition. National tastes continued to prevail when the brothers returned home to England. At Sutton Park, the Bedfordshire country house leased until Swallowfield's renovations were complete. Henry was struck by the proprietor's use of portraits to proclaim his family's essential Englishness. The place that we have taken belongs to the Burgoynes and has for generations, Henry wrote from this temporary abode. 
They are one of the oldest families in England. The hall is lined with the pictures of their ancestors. Once ensconced at Swallowfield, the Russells were quick to deploy paintings to construct a genealogy that integrated their nouveau riche family history into the very fabric of their genteel and historic English home. A portrait by Romney of the infant Henry with his mother adorned Swallowfield's halls, reflecting the Russells' appreciation of the best traditions of 18th century English painting. Nearby hung portraits of Sir Henry Russell's Kentish forebears, images which his eldest son commissioned the royal academician David Wilkie to repaint so as to enhance his ancestors' appearance of gentility. Although the Russells repeatedly used Georgian material culture to underpin their English heritage and identity, we do not need even to scratch beneath the surface of Swallowfield's elegant interiors to expose its deep, enduring connections to India. In both their commissioning and display, Swallowfield's material objects repeatedly betray their global origins. Take, for example, this silver gilt presentation vase dating from 1823. When Henry left his posting at Hyderabad in 1820 to return to England, the company men who had served under him subscribed funds for the purchase of what they described as a few articles of household plate, which they hope by being in daily use in his family may sometimes remind him of those officers who are grateful for the good he has done to the East India Company's service. Enhancing Swallowfield's genteel furnishings, these silver ornaments spoke eloquently in and through his home to Henry Russell's refined tastes and imperial virtues. Because the vase's purchase was directly precipitated by Henry's departure from Hyderabad, however, its acquisition and display also testify to the inherent violence of empire and to Henry's active participation in that violence. For Henry Russell had left the company service and returned to England prematurely, the company in 1820 removed him from Hyderabad for ordering the flogging of two Indian men, a savage and public display of colonial discipline that resulted in the death of both men. For years after their return from India, Henry and his brother Charles would lavish time, effort and money not only into the refurbishment of Swallowfield as a genteel family seat, but also into frenetic efforts to protect Henry's reputation by ensuring that this brutal episode and his consequent sacking by the company remained hidden from view. Their private letters in the 1820s thus record the brothers ordering silks and commissioning silver in one paragraph and scheming to buy clandestine proof copies of the East India Company's investigative reports into the Hyderabad floggings in the next. Other Indian secrets also hid in open view at Swallowfield in these years, revealing the human dimensions of the home's role as a nodal point of British Empire in the Berkshire countryside. Two Indian portraits that Henry placed on the walls of his new home attest both to Swallowfield's immersion in global historical narratives and to the Russell family's hybrid English identities. A staunch Tory with reactionary political tendencies, the young Henry Russell nonetheless displayed cosmopolitan sexual tastes and his Indian dalliances left enduring traces on Swallowfield's interiors. Henry married twice in India, but he also kept successive and at times simultaneous Indian concubines and mistresses. 
Both before and after his marriage, he entered into a clandestine liaison with a former mistress, or perhaps wife, of the company diplomat who had preceded him at Hyderabad, James Kirkpatrick. A Muslim noblewoman from an influential family, Kair Anissa had borne Kirkpatrick two children, both of whom were removed from their mother and sent to England as young children to be raised as English. It was Henry Russell who, after Kirkpatrick's death, relayed information about these children to their distraught mother, and Henry too, now himself their mother's lover, who undertook to deliver to her the portrait of the siblings painted prior to their departure for England. On the eve of his first marriage in 1808, Henry's correspondence with his brother Charles referred repeatedly to his mistress, Kair Anissa's anxiety to see and possess the portrait of her absent children. The same letters asked Charles to make appropriate arrangements for the confinement of a woman called Zora, a domestic slave in Kair Anissa's household who was now pregnant with Henry's child. It is these complex relationships of power, of dependence, of abjection, of affection and of desire that we must see when we visualise the reception rooms at Swallowfield Park in the 1830s. For it was here that the celebrated portrait of Kirkpatrick's children, a portrait extracted from their mother's fond possession by Henry Russell and taken by him to his new home in England, were displayed throughout the Victorian period alongside a portrait of Kaira Nissa, their mother, his former mistress. Access to Swallowfield's carefully choreographed interiors was clearly conditioned by complex and at times contradictory interpretations and segregations of Englishness, race, space, family and home. Recent research on slavery has revealed that Caribbean plantations, their wealth, their personnel, their progeny, left conspicuous imprints on the British country house tradition. As Henry Russell's display of the portraits of Kair Anissa and her children demonstrates, South Asian objects and images that spoke to issues of racial power and identity likewise featured prominently in English stately homes. Sir Henry Russell's private correspondence to his sons in the 19th century indeed repeatedly underlined the need to defend the integrity of his newly established family line against a disparate array of un-English racial threats located not only in India but also at home in Britain. His son Henry's first wife, Jane Casimir, whom Henry married in Madras, was the daughter of a senior East India Company official whose ancestry, as in many such families, was mixed. Her English father's surname suggested Portuguese forebears. His grandmother had been a Malay. On the maternal side, Jane's family was Scottish, belonging to Clan Campbell. Sir Henry Russell's horror and outrage at his son's marriage to Jane were fueled by his antagonism to this cosmopolitan heritage. In a family letter describing his response to Henry's marriage, Sir Henry wrote of how disagreeable to me it was that the blood of my descendants should be contaminated by one streak of black. Besides, too, I disliked the connection with the Campbells, which would introduce him to such a vile set of aunts. Jane's death, shortly after her marriage, prevented Sir Henry's fear of a mixed-race Russell heir from being realised, but Henry Russell's promiscuity in India ensured that his progeny included several mixed-race illegitimate children. He fathered at least one son and one daughter with Zora, his mistress Kair Anissa's domestic slave. Either prior to or during Henry's second marriage, he sired another daughter on another unknown Indian woman. 
During her infancy, this child lived in the capacious precincts of Henry's household in the Hyderabad residency, but like the Kirkpatrick children years earlier, she was sent home to England to be raised in the English fashion. Neither acknowledged nor visited by her father, she was placed under the guardianship of Major Robert Pittman, a friend and ally from Henry's Hyderabad days. Named Mary Wilson, the child was sent by Henry to a small boarding school at Clapham and was trained up to be a governess. Henry and Pittman were adamant that she must learn self-sufficiently so, so, so as not to drain the Russell family's fortune. In a letter to Pittman in 1834, Henry suggested that Mary must save part of her salary each year to encourage habits of providence as well as to secure something to lean on hereafter. Pittman responded that it has always been an object with me to impress on Mary that she would have to work for her livelihood and that her success in life must depend upon her own exertions. Her life story provides a sharp contrast to the biographies of Henry Russell's four legitimate white daughters who were educated for marriage safely at home at Swallowfield by their mother and then familiarised with European high culture through extended tours of the continent chaperoned by their parents. Henry Russell's extensive correspondence about the fortunes of this mixed-race daughter offer us another window onto Swallowfield's central role in establishing and maintaining the Russell family's English identities. Put to work as a governess, Mary suffered a nervous collapse in her teens and was sent back to Clapham to recover. Her guardian Pittman wrote to Henry outlining the cause of this mental breakdown. Besides the fatigues of her situation, the dear child's mind for some time back has been much agitated on the subject of her birth, of which I have avoided giving her any explanation, he noted. Her inquiries during the past two years have been frequent. At her age, it is natural she should think deeply on a subject so interesting to her, and I hope you will agree with me some means of setting her mind at rest. Henry, however, was implacable. Mary's letters to Pittman ache with desire for an identity. Henry's letters to Pittman bristle with determination to exclude Mary from his family line by denying her both knowledge of her origins and access to his country house. In November 1838, Henry noted that telling Mary whose daughter she is would open the door to serious embarrassment of many kinds. In April, he underlined how important it was that Mary should not be given an intimation of who she is. In this fraught emotional context, Swallowfield's walls provided physical barriers that both marked the distance between India and England and sharply demarcated the space between family members and outsiders. Pippin reported that Mary has vivid recollections of the house in Hyderabad in which she passed her early days, of the residency library to which she was occasionally taken, and from her description, I think also, of her father and mother. In England, Henry Russell emphatically countered co-residence at Swallowfield and shared sociability were simply out of the question. In the first place, I could not tell her who she is without at the same time receiving her at least occasionally into my house. And I find what is perhaps not only natural but proper that Lady Russell would object to this at all counts while her own daughters are unmarried. How typical are these Swallowfield stories of the British country house, its families and its furnishings? Research by the East India Company at Home team and its project associates can shed new light on this and related questions. 
Before turning to this wider research, let me introduce you to these many historians. On the payroll for the full three years of the project, many thanks to the Levyham Trust, which funds us, are the four members of the UCL-based core group, myself, postdoctoral researchers Helen Clifford and Kate Smith, and PhD student Ellen Filer. We've been joined for shorter periods by three additional UCL-based collaborators, Paul May, who built our website, Yutika Sharma, who played a key part in a recent collaboration with the National Trust at Osterley House, and Chris Jeppesen, whose research in the British Library revealed significant linkages between East India Company family fortunes and British families whose wealth derived from Caribbean slavery. Rounding our group up to a baker's dozen are the six members of our advisory boards, researchers based in English, Scottish and Welsh, archives, communities, libraries, museums and universities, who from the outset have given us access to new records, resources and audiences, while generously lending us their specialist expertise. To these collaborators must be added our 278 project associates, men and women based in 17 different countries. Attending workshops, sharing their research findings, recording oral histories and writing case studies of company objects, families and homes for publication on our open access website. The most active of these project associates have transformed what we can ask, what we can answer and what we can do on the East India Company at Home. Followers on Twitter, 353 to date, augment our activities through commentary and dissemination. And finally, visitors to our website from around the world, about a thousand unique visitors in January 2014, for example, join our project at times as readers only, but also as active participant researchers. How does research conducted by these historians confirm challenge or extend the image of the stately home and the nation projected by the Russells at Swallowfield Park. In the Georgian period, Berkshire was known as the English Hindustan, an epithet that reflected the conspicuous presence in the county of retired East India Company officials and their families. Kate Smith's research on a cluster of Berkshire country houses demonstrates that Swallowfield was only one among many stately homes in and through which company men and women imagined, enacted and policed their English identities, even as they and their far-flung families lived global lives. Elizabethan, Palladian or Gothic, the exterior architecture of such houses appears to ground them firmly in English or European traditions of design, an association that their 21st century marketing materials and histories repeatedly reinforce. But the diaries, letters and wills Kate uses to explore their history in the Georgian period reveal Indian wealth, aesthetics, materials, patronage, sociability and connections as the lifeblood of these English homes in the 18th and 19th centuries. Aspirations to own a country house drove company men and women to India, she finds. On the subcontinent, stately homes provided inspirational focal points for company families offering an imagined, stable, English space of belonging that contrasted sharply with their dislocated lives in Indian exile. The wealth extracted from India in these years, moreover, reshaped the social geography of English country life, fueling a vibrant market in landed estates. Englefield House in Berkshire was, for example, only one of the five country seats purchased with the Indian fortune amassed by Richard Benyon, who remitted £75,000 or £131 million in today's money home to England from India. 
Nor were Berkshire country houses exceptional in using Indian wealth and Indian material furnishings to refashion British interiors and identities. Helen Clifford's case study of Sir Lawrence Dundas, his many mansions, again illustrates how careful archival digging reveals Indian building blocks, even in stately homes that appear to rest on more narrowly national foundations. The son of a Scottish woolen draper, Dundas rose to wealth and power as a merchant contractor for the British Army, which he supplied both during the Jacobite campaigns of 1745 and during the Seven Years' War. Yet European investments filled only a portion of Dundas's financial portfolio. The purchase of over £100,000 of East India Company stock in 1769 is only one example of his deep immersion in the company and its trade. Dundas's wealth allowed him to purchase elegant urban and country houses that stretch from London through Hertfordshire to North Yorkshire, Edinburgh and Stirling. The inventory for Dundas's house in Stirling in 1763 illustrates the geographical extent to which the tentacles of East India Company trade had reached by mid-century. Far from London in a provincial Scottish outpost, this home nonetheless boasted 28 Indian pictures in its gallery. Its drawing room contained one settee with blue Indian satin, two Indian cabinets, an Indian trunk, and two fire screens with Indian paper. Many of the other furnishings at this home are likely to have been imitations of goods brought back from China in the East India Company's vessels imports that transformed British tastes and suggested new ideas about what it was to be modern. First published in 1754, Thomas Chippendale's Gentleman and Cabinet Maker's Director, being a large collection of the most elegant and useful designs of household furniture in the Gothic, Chinese and modern taste, allowed British craftsmen to execute items such as Lady Dadas's six Chinese chairs covered with blue and white cotton at home in Britain, but in the Chinese manner. Repeatedly, project associates find that Asian luxuries that flowed from the company's ships into Georgian and Victorian country homes were dynamic material goods, freighted with both personal meanings and historical significance. Project associate Stephen McDowell's case study of Chinese porcelain at Shugborough, Staffordshire, reminds us that material objects not only functioned to delimit class, race and status through daily use in the country house, but also offered a material means with which to revise British historical narratives. Commodore George Anson funded much of the expansion and refurbishment of his elder brother Thomas's Shugborough house and estate, with a fortune he secured at Canton. Anson, like hundreds of English sea captains before and after him, commissioned an elaborate porcelain dinner service while in China, 208 pieces of which remain on display at Shugborough today. The 20th century, however, saw this Chinese porcelain take on an historical life of its own. Stevens' close readings of 18th century Chinese sources alongside the Anson family archive demonstrate that Anson designed and commissioned the dinner service to celebrate his circumnavigation of the globe. But since the 20th century, a cocktail of family anecdote, a speculative article in Country Life and equally speculative commentary by an antiques roadshow presenter have transmogrified this historical narrative, replacing it with a triumphalist tale of daring do. In the face of the 18th century evidence, the history of Shugborough's porcelain expounded on BBC television 
proclaims that the dinner service was not commissioned by Anson himself, but rather gifted to him by the eternally grateful merchants of Canton. Following a fire which, again in the absence of evidence, Anson is now said to have played an heroic part. At multiple levels, the politics of porcelain and other Asian goods in country houses challenges received narratives through which the history of Britain is recounted as an insulated island story. Ellen Filer's doctoral research on the East India Company and the Scottish borders likewise disrupts neat narratives in which English norms are taken to stand for wider British phenomena. To be sure, Ellen's research identifies border Scots who grappled with many of the same dilemmas as the company men and women of England and Wales. Should mixed-race children, who were illegitimate, be sent home to Scotland, for example? Were they white or black, Indian or British? Should they, or instead their legitimate white half-siblings, inherit the family's Indian homes? But the border's deep entanglement with India also departed in key respects from English colonial practice. Here, the marriage patterns of company daughters, for example, appear to have diverged sharply from English norms, while border boys' experiences of education differed from their English counterparts, even when their parents sent them to Eton. To the Georgian era, as Linda Colley has suggested, see the forging of a united British nation, Ellen's viewpoint from the East India Company's strongholds in Scotland suggests that it did not. The research findings I've summarised so far are drawn from only a handful of the 13 case studies posted on the project website. By September, we hope to have completed between 30 and 40 case studies, most of them written by project associates based outside university settings. In the final section of my lecture, I want to return to the questions I raised at its outset, asking who collaborates in the production of historical knowledge about Britain in Britain today, and why that collaboration matters. Of the 278 associates who have joined our project to date, roughly a third have a primary university affiliation. The bulk of our associates, however, are historians whose research is rooted in other institutional frameworks. They work as archivists, craftspeople, curators, design historians, family historians, genealogists, local historians, museum professionals, or stately home volunteers. Reading through our membership roles, perhaps the most striking feature of these researchers is the combined depth and breadth of their historical engagement. Project associate number 102 describes himself as a family historian, local historian, independent scholar, and genealogist. Project Associate 103 belongs to NADFAS, the National Trust, and the Mosseloaders Association. Project Associate 108 brings, belongs to the Furniture History Society, the Worshipful Company of Basket Makers, and the Heritage Crafts Association. Many associates belong to the Families in British India Society, the Guild of One Name Studies, and or to their local history society. What does this body of collaborators bring to the historical table? Two of the first case studies we published suggest the advantages of working across communities of historical researchers rather than remaining within an ivory turret. Local historian Georgina Green began her research on Valentine's Mansion, Essex, to support a heritage lottery fund bid to preserve this Restoration-era home for the local community. Her research not only revealed an extended connection between Valentine's and the East India Company, but also exposed 18th century Ilford as a hotbed of East India Company domesticity and business enterprise. 
Here, retired East India Company sea captains, such as Sir Charles Raymond of Valentine's Mansion, purchased and furnished houses with their private Indian fortunes, establishing a dense residential network that underpinned their collaborative investments in new English banking and insurance ventures. Georgina's research exploits the riches of the British Library's East India Company collections, but it has also both produced and analysed a new archive of historical material. The Chinese porcelain plate, once commissioned and owned by Captain Raymond and now in Georgina's possession, like the Chinese porcelain shards and Indian gemstones salvaged in Guernsey waters by Richard Keane from the wreckage of Raymond's East India Company vessel, give us access to new resources that open new vistas onto the history of communities in Essex that were, in the 18th century as they are today, simultaneously local, national and global. Like Georgina Green's assessment of Valentine's, Sir John Sykes's case study of Sir Francis Sykes's Indian Seal brings into analytical focus material objects and material histories that cannot be told from the collections of public museums, archives and libraries alone. Sir Francis Sykes amassed a huge fortune in 18th century India, with which he purchased country estates in Yorkshire, Dorset and Berkshire. Inscribed in Persian, Sykes's Indian seal was a precious object, capable of substituting in contractual negotiations for his presence. Yet although Sykes himself sailed from India home to England in the later 18th century, his seal returned to his family's possession only 200 years later. Left in the safe hands of his Indian banyan, or man of business, Krishna Kanta Nandi, the seal remained in the intervening centuries in the possession of Nandi's descendants. Its return to England in the 1990s forms an evocative chapter in an extended intercontinental family history, but it is also a forceful reminder of the ties of credit, trust, profit and obligation that linked English and Indian mercantile elites in the company era, enabling an island nation to grow dominant in global trade and politics. As a practice, Collaborative research, which links historians across a range of research communities, is not unproblematic, nor does public history provide an historiographical silver bullet. The political imperatives of the heritage industry, for example, often encourage, rather than challenge, the cosy assumptions of popular memory, prioritising a sense of shared identity and social harmony over aspects of the past that point to unequal divisions of wealth, unequal access to cultural capital, unequal rights to belong. Most troubling for our project is the great disparity between the personnel and resources available for investigating the British and the Indian dimensions of the Anglo-Indian imperial encounter. In contrast to India, researchers based in Britain enjoy carefully curated museum collections, an ever-expanding digital archive and proliferating voluntary history societies. This disparity privileges British over Indian perspectives, masking the histories of peasants, weavers, craftsmen, sailors, domestic servants and slaves on the subcontinent, histories that are also integral to the companies and thus to Britain's national narratives. In concluding, however, I want to draw attention to a different cluster of disparities in the public understanding of modern British history. Who does history in Britain today? Who speaks for the past? In her book, The Gender of History, published in 1998, historian Bonnie Smith lamented the demise in the late 19th century and the 20th century of the amateur historian, 
a development she associated with the rise of academic history in universities. Women, Smith observed, had been conspicuously present within the ranks of the Georgian and Victorian army of practice-based amateur historians, but they were conspicuously absent from the professionalized discipline of academic history that replaced it. Ironically, Smith's lament for the demise of the amateur historian was published on the eve of the great boom in public history that now surrounds us, a boom that has proven a great equalizer in the gender of historical practice on the ground. In the East India Company at Home project, for example, a consistent two-thirds of our associates have been women, while the online history resource Find My Past, with 710,000 unique visitors per month, has a subscription base that is 51% male and 49% female. In contrast, of the 16 historians Michael Gove musters for historical combat on the national curriculum, only one is female. My point here is not simply the obvious one of gender disparity, salient and important, although that point is. Rather, the skewed gender politics of the curriculum battles reflect wider gaps and erasures that surface again and again in public debates and popular programs on the history of the British nation. The past two decades have seen a paradigm shift in who does history and in how history can be done, as public history has expanded dramatically in scale, scope, resources and ambition. One wouldn't know it, however, from the curriculum debates or one's television, across which continued to parade a shockingly narrow band of media men, explicitly presented as experts on the past capable of distinguishing true from false British histories. Surely the new kinds of public history practice that have emerged in local communities, voluntary societies, national libraries, museums, and more recently universities deserve a place at the table in debates about how history should be taught and how history is done. Discussions of the school curriculum focus relentlessly on the content of national narratives, but fail to acknowledge that history as a practice is on the move. As the practice of history increasingly escapes the confines of the academy, Overarching narratives of the nation increasingly fragment because new evidence surfaces and is viewed from new frameworks by new communities of historians. Thus, for example, research by hundreds of extra-university and academic historians investigating the East India Company's local and regional presence in England, Scotland and Wales is gradually dismantling the claim that modern British history can be told as an island story. In 1900, the English National Trust appealed to the public for funding with the following words. The Trust appeals for its supporters, for its support, not only to all lovers of their country, but also to those who by race or language are brought up in English traditions or to whom the historic associations of England are dear. It was from this appeal, gradually and by surprisingly circuitous routes, that the country house emerged in Britain as a modern icon of the nation. Today, in 2014, we have a much richer understanding of race, nation, tradition and home and a much richer repertoire of historical practices with which to investigate these key concepts. These new perspectives do not sideline or rubbish the country house, its elegant interiors and its genteel historical den denizens. Rather, they enrich these subjects precisely by revealing their complex, contradictory, cosmopolitan and thus human histories. This is modern British history in practice. Deal with it, Mr Gove. <laughs>